Okay. So there's this old fellow, good afternoon. So today we're beginning doing Parshas Tetzave. So there's this old fellow lying on his deathbed, thinking about his last few thoughts as he dies, and sitting by his side as his dedicated wife for the past 50 years, never leaving him for a moment. And he looks up at his wife and he says, You know, remember when we were 25 and I fell off the tractor and I broke my leg and you sat at my side in the hospital when everybody else forgot about me? She says, Yeah, sure, I remember that well. Then he says, Remember when I was 45, I tried opening up my own business and lost all my money? Nobody trusted in me, but you still were at my side. She says, Sure, I remember that well. Remember when we retired at 65 years old, I took my whole pension, put it into the stock market and lost every penny. And you were still at my side and you watched me everything. She says, yeah, of course, how can I forget? He looks at her and he sees, you know what I think? Ever since you were at my side, all I had was bad luck. (laughs) Thanks a lot. One of the things that we find in uh, common history, or not only the common human being, always falls back to nostalgia. Always, whenever they're thinking about something, everybody says, remember when, oh, those days, things were much better. Years ago, nobody ever did it the way they did it. Nobody did it like my grandmother. There's nobody around like my grandfather. There's nobody around like my father. Everything was always, the past was always better. Today, we're a bunch of losers. That's usually when people start going back into nostalgia. And we always look back. We are the people from yesteryear. We are the great scholars from then. We are the people who have some ethics and values. And today, look what everything happened. And one of the reasons why people do it is because it's easier. Instead of actually fixing the problem, instead of actually doing something about it, we just start reminiscing about how in the past times it was better. But it's not only today's day and age that people go back and fall back to nostalgia. But this is a common practice. Something you find a hundred years ago, they said that a hundred years before them was better. And a hundred years before them, they said a hundred years before them, and so on and so forth. And this is the way it is. From the beginning of time, we believe that the first people were perfect, and ever since man was created, we just got worse as time goes on. And in fact, the Talmud even says it. The Talmud in the tractate of Shabbos says, if the earlier generations were like angels, then we are like men. And if the earlier generations that were like men, then we are like donkeys. And we're not even like the donkey of Rabbi Hanina ben Daisa or Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer, that who they were of great elated state, but we're like real donkeys. So even the Talmud comes to the recognition to, so to speak, say that the earlier generations, they did better than us, so to speak. This is actually a basis in Jewish law. For example, there's a halacha in Jewish law. The way it works is, it's halacha kibasra'in. The halacha is like the later generation. And whenever there's a debate, I'm sorry, the halacha is like, we look at the later, but we must, we cannot argue with the previous uh, opinion. So for example, the later authorities of Jewish law will have to base their code of Jewish law on what it does in code of Jewish law. 
go to Jewish law is based on the Talmud. The Talmud is based on the Mishnah. The Mishnah is based on the prophets. The prophets are based on what Moshe said. And nobody would argue with Moshe. So for example, just to give you a little case in point, in the Talmud, if a Talmudic scholar says a statement and it's in contradictory to a Mishnah, we wouldn't take on what he said. He would have to validate his opinion to be able to make sure that he has a Tana, which means a Mishnah, a generation before him, who holds like him. Now, in the interpretation itself, we would go after the later opinion because they are the one, but the actual interpretation must be based on a predecessor before him. So what are we going to talk about today is looking at this concept of the later generations versus the earlier generations and how it applies and how we see it in this week's story. It's um, funny, I'm sorry, sure. but in American law, that's exactly what they do. A lawyer will quote something that happened. He has to have precedent, they call right. it, yes. And if you look in the Torah, there's probably not a verse in the Torah that has many questions on it as this week's Torah reading. Just to give you an example, the first verse of this week's Torah reading, the Abarbanel, or I should say, the, has ten questions on it. The Al-Sheikh was another commentator on the Talmud, has, uh, on, the, on the Torah, has 15 questions on it. Nachmanides has questions on it. Kliyoka, you name a uh, commentary on the Torah, has a question on the first verse in this week's Torah reading. Not one, not two, but many. What is the Torah reading? And I think you have source sheets there, you can even follow along. And that is the first Torah reading of this week, it says, in the book of Exodus, the Torah begins, Yisrael, You should command to the Jewish people. And they should take for you olive oil crushed to the luminary to be able to light the to- uh, menorah in the tent of gathering outside the curtain, which will where the holy ark is. And over there, Aaron and his sons should kindle it from morning to evening. What is Moshe telling the Jewish people to summarize? Telling the Jewish people that they should go collect olives to crush oil so that there should be oil to light the menorah. That's the commandment. So number one, there are four questions just looking at the surface of this, uh, this verse. Number one, all of a sudden, why is he telling them to get oil for the menorah? The tabernacle hasn't even been built. They didn't even designate who the Kohen is going to be. They didn't even make the garments for the Kohen. What do you need oil for? The menorah is not even made yet. But they have to grow the trees. They have to grow the, the, the desert, the trees are not growing. And if they're going to have to grow the trees, the olives are not coming there that quick anyway. So what is he telling them now? He's not telling them plant trees. Go get olives to crush oil. What's the, what's the rush? You didn't even build the building yet. You don't even know who's going to light it. You don't even have the menorah yet. Number two, you know, it's, it, number two, if he's already telling them about to bring the olives and the oil, what happened to all the other things? You don't see that he tells them to go get the spices. You don't see he tells them to go get the wood yet. That's only in a few Torah readings when the Jewish people start collecting all the items for the tabernacle. Why is this different? Even more so, later on in the book of Leviticus, where the Kohanim, Aaron and his sons, are they're appointed to be the Kohanim, and they're given their clothing, and they're anointed and everything else, and they're given the task to work in the Holy Temple, then Moshe repeats to the Jewish people, go get olives down like the menorah, which over there makes sense, because they have everything set up, we know who's going to like them, nor now we're to get the oil. Why say it over here, if you anyone's going to repeat it later in the book of Leviticus, where it's applicable? Make it even further the question. Every other Torah reading begins with the words, God said to Moses speaking, God spoke to Moses saying, God, all of that terminology. This Torah reading begins with the words, Ve'ato and you, Tetzatah command the Jewish people. Who's you? Is it Moses? Is it Aaron? Is it Hur? Is it Nachshon? Who's you? 
But then it goes on further in this week's Torah reading. And you bring clothes to Kohanim. And you will get them dressed. Is Moses talking to himself? Is Moses saying that he will do it? What's happening here? Where's Moses? The Zohar gives a, an interesting interpretation. And the Zohar says, you will notice something very unique in this week's Torah reading. Moses' name is not mentioned in the entire Torah reading. It is the only Torah reading from the birth of Moses until the end of the book of Deuteronomy that Moses' name is not mentioned. It means, why is Moses' name not mentioned here? is because in two weeks' time, Moses sees the Jewish people, in fact, next week, when we see Moses sees the Jewish people swim with the golden calf, God wants to destroy the Jewish nation. Moses protests to God, do not destroy the Jewish nation, and if you do, take my name out of your book. With that, even though God eventually forgave the Jewish people, but the very fact that a tzaddik, that a righteous person says something, it has to happen in some type of way, and for that reason, Moses' name is not mentioned in this week's Torah reading to be able to have some type of element of what Moses said happen into existence. But there's one problem that some ask. is number one, that event didn't happen yet. That only event happens next week. So why is it this week's Torah reading that it's about? Even more so, seemingly, you're taking out Moses' name from the Torah reading, but you're saying, but you. It's not even the whole Torah, generally, until the book of Deuteronomy is spoken in third person. God spoke to Moses, God said to Moses, God said to Aaron, God said to the Jewish people. And over here, it's a direct person, a you. So where's the punishment here? In fact, it's even a better closeness, it's more relevant that he's talking to him and in you in first person. Even more so, the question comes. Even if you want to say that Moses should be telling them to collect oil and all that stuff. Why are they bringing the oil to Moses? Since when is Moses lighting the menorah? Moses' task wasn't to light the menorah, it was going to be Aaron's task to light the menorah. So he says, speak to the Jewish people, they should bring the oil, who should they bring the oil to? To you, why to you? What are you going to do with it? You're not lighting the menorah. So someone has suggested that the reason Nachmanani says that why did they bring it to Moses because Moses had to make sure it was good. So Moses now became quality control. No other case do we see in the Torah that Moses all of a sudden checked if the lumber was good, if the gold was good, if the purple wool was good. All of a sudden, the oil is the one he has to check. He's now in charge of quality control to make sure that he check every animal to make sure they had no blemish. We can find that. So why all of a sudden is the oil the job for Moses to check in the quality control? And the very fact that Moses is the one to tell the Jewish people to bring it must have some type of connotation. And to take it even a step further, the actual oxymoron and the actual words of the Torah, on one hand the Torah says, bring the oil, that it should be a continuous light, and then a verse later it says, to be lit from morning to evening. Is it a continuous light, or is it from morning to evening? Which one is it? So as you can see, just in this first verse, we have multiple questions, even with the answers we're still stuck with a little bit of questions. And with this, we come to an explanation that the Hasidic commentators, and mainly the Rebbe, gives us on the second question, which then helps us understand the whole entire picture of where this Torah reading is coming from, where it's based, and what the eternal message and contemporary relationship it is for us in today's day and age.
And there's something that the Torah is alluding to that happened this week. Tomorrow is the yard site, is the day of passing of Moses. The seventh of Adar was the day that Moses passed away. The Talmud tells us that Haman, wicked evil Haman, when he was looking for a month to decide when to make this special festival for the Jewish people of Purim, he wanted to maybe look for a month that there was no tragedies, that there was only tragedies for the Jewish people. And he saw that in the seventh of Adar, Moses died. He says, what better month can I make for the Jewish people a tragedy? Is it a day that they're already accustomed to tragedies? But he and therefore he decided to make it in the year, in the month of Adar, because he said Moses passed away. He, what he did not know was that this day was also the day that Moses was born. Someone asked, how was it that he only knew that it was the day that Moses died and not the day that Moses was born? So some commentators explained it was because of the Torah, it says clearly about Moses' death, but it doesn't say clearly about Moses' birth, about the date of it. But what we see over here is that what does he see? All of a sudden, he uses this opportunity, so to speak, for Moses' death to look at it as a tragedy. The Torah alludes to it as well. That in the week of Moses' passing, even though it is only next week where he tells God, erase me from the book, it is that week that we don't find Torah's, that we don't find Moses' name in the actual Torah. And therefore, over here, what God is telling us, what God is telling us over here is a very important message. He was telling us, what does it mean, the passing of a tzaddik? What does it mean when a righteous person passes on to the next world? When a righteous person passes on to the next world, the Talmud uses the terminology that the passing of a tzaddik is an atonement for the people of his generation. And the righteous people, their time of passing is considered that every single day of their life, they lived it to the fullest. So now when we look at Moses' passing, what God is telling Moses is as follows. He tells him like this. This is the week of your passing. But you have to remember you should command to the Jewish people. Explaining to Moses that the passing of a tzaddik is not an ordinary passing the way it is by every other individual. By everybody else, there are situations in their life. God speaks to them and they pass on the mission message to the people. They go through a transient type of life that they live in the physical and then they're no longer. That means whatever they've accomplished in their life, in their physical life, happens and then they move on. But a tzaddik, a righteous person, is the atah. Do you, the individual, continues to live on even after your passing. The spirituality that exists within the tzaddik. The levels that they've joined and what they have accomplished in this world means that they don't only live a physical life, but they also live a spiritual life. And therefore, what they've accomplished here in this world does not only affect them while they're here in this world, but also affects them even while they're gone. And therefore, God is telling Moses a very important message, number one. Realize and understand that you are not an ordinary person. The relationship that you have with the Jewish people is not only going to be while you're alive. Yes, you ask, take my life away from me, and, I'm there, and so on, erase me from your book. But guess what? It's not only limited to the time that you were there with the Jewish people physically. Because you, Moses, are connected to the Jewish people in every part of their life, even after your passing. 
Over here, what was God telling Moshe, was, as, the, as the Zohar tells us, tzaddikim, that the righteous, even while they passed, even in their passing, they're still considered very much alive. And as the words that the Alter Rebbe wrote to the Hasidim of Rabbi Nachamendel of Rimenov, he taught them and he said, he mentioned to them the words of the Zohar and he said, a tzaddik, a righteous person when they pass, they are found in all worlds even more than when they were alive. Because when they were alive, they were limited to the physical being. They were limited to the physical existence. They can be here, not there. But when the tzaddik passes away, every single part of them, their soul is enduring forever and ever and is eternal. And everything they've done expresses itself in many different ways. For example, what was the main life of the tzaddik before he passed? Was not his physical being, was his soul, was his spirit. The love, the fear, the faith in God that he had. The soul doesn't end just because the body is no longer around. The soul continues to be. And therefore, in every single part, and in every single parcel of a person's life, the tzaddik continues to be. And as in the words of the Moshe, in the words of the Zohar, there's a Moshe in every single generation. There's a shepherd teaching the Jewish people, giving the Jewish people, energizing the Jewish people in every generation. And this is what is alluded to, the first hint in this week's Torah reading. That Moshe will continue to be that guide, that shepherd for the Jewish people, even after the seventh of Adar, even after the day of this passing even when they won't be able to, so to speak, to turn to Moshe in physical life and ask him requests and ask him to advise and ask him to counsel and ask him to explain. The soul of Moshe is not limited to physicality and therefore continues to be on in the most spiritual way. The eternity of the soul of Moshe happens in every single part of a person's life. And this is only... As the Alter Rebbe, as I mentioned, mentioned to the people of the letter of the, of the Hasidim of Ramnachamendel of Rimenov, who explained to them and he said that the tzaddik soul after his passing it may be covered in some type of vessel, so to speak. But when we energize ourselves and we're able to tap into that vessel, we then have the ability to enjoy, to explain and appreciate and understand even greater and deeper than what we had until now. Now think of this for a moment. What was Moshe telling the Jewish people? What was God telling the Jewish people? That the passing of Moshe is not something that seizes Moshe's existence, but is an eternal bond that the Jewish people will forever have with Moshe, no matter the time, no matter the place, no matter the era. And let's go back for a moment. Look at what Moshe, look at what Haman tried to do. Haman comes along and says, why am I going to make it in the month of Adar? Because this is the time of the passing of Moshe. And look how it happened for him. What did he do? He did not know that Moshe was born. So the commentators in the Talmud asked the question, one second, why didn't he know that they were born? And even if he knew that he was born, what's the big deal? What does that change? How does that change the dynamic if he would have known that he was born? What's going on over here? Even before he was born, even if he, even if he was born that time, what's the bottom line? He died at that time. It was his yard site. 
That means what is the Talmud telling us? And he did not know that on the seventh of Adar he was also born. What do you mean he did not know? First of all, why could it be that he didn't know? Why do we say he didn't know? And one of the commentators back in the 1700s, Rabbi Yenis and Eibschitz, brilliant scholar, gave the interesting explanation. He says, Haman knew when Moses was born. Why shouldn't he know? If he knew that the verse that when Moses would die, maybe he knew when Moses was born. What didn't Haman know? Haman didn't know the quality of a righteous person. That the righteous person's passing doesn't make a difference. That as long as he was born, as long as he was in this world, that made an impact, that impact is for eternal. That means Haman looked at Moses and said, look, the guy died. Over. Who cares if he was born? He was born, but now he died. His influence is no longer existence. It's no longer paramount. But he did not know that as long as Moses was born, this is a day of continuous inspiration. Moses doesn't cease to exist just because he died on the seventh of Adar. And therefore the Talmud uses the terminology. He did not know that on the seventh of Adar Moses died, and on the seventh of Adar Moses was born. He did not realize that just because there was a death after this birth, the death after the birth brought about to a new birth, if you want to call it to a soul that is ever-existent and pertinent and changes the dynamic of the Jewish people in every generation that they're in. It says when Moses passed, the terminology that the verse is, Hashem Hashem, the sun dawned and the sun shined, that there was never an interruption between Moses and Joshua and there was never an interruption for a leader of the Jewish people. Meaning that in every single generation there is a leader, there is a Moses, there is a person that is in giving and saturating the generation with the ability to be able to understand and appreciate the greatness of God. The interesting thing is that the Talmud mentions that we know that in the month of joy we have to, month of Adar we have to increase in joy and the month of Adar is considered a time of extra jubilation and it's considered a very good luck for Jewish people. So for example in other months of the year there are certain days that people are not supposed to get married, there are certain days which are maybe not such good, considered good omens, but in the month of Adar, every single day is considered good. And the Talmud in the tractate of Tainus says, just like in the month of Av, we have to diminish in joy, so too in the month of Adar, we have to increase in joy. And the question that many Talmudic commentators ask, what does it mean, just like in Av, I have to diminish in joy, so too in Adar, I have to increase in joy. Why does it have to be just like Say in Adar, I have to increase in joy. And the commentators explain as follows. In the month of Av, because since we have one day during that month, which is the destruction of the temple, already from the beginning of the month is a time of mourning, we decrease in different type of pleasures, and it's not considered a good time for the Jews, so to speak. That means that one day impacts the rest of the month. So too, the Talmud says, the one day in the month of Adar, the seventh of Adar, the birthday of Moses, and as well as the yard side of Moses, impacts the rest of the month and makes it a lucky month. And what brought about the salvation for the Jewish people, the joy that they were able to be victorious over Haman, was because it was that special day, brought about a great death, um, auspicious time for the rest of the month. What we see over here is that one day of Adar impacts the entire rest of the month. And what day is it? the day of Moshe's birth and the day of Moshe's passing, teaching us how Moshe, even after his passing, 
continues to have that great impact on the Jewish people. Well, God was telling him, you will command the Jewish people because your impact will continue, will be continuous. The question is still, back to our original statement, why is it that Moses was this great leader? But why is it is as the generations get later and later, that holiness seemingly seems to lean and as the Talmud testifies themselves, in the beginning was men, that we are like donkeys. What, that means that holiness, that spirituality, continues to weed. And why is that? Why can't we, if God is telling Moses that that connection and that inspiration that he was giving the Jewish people continues after his passing, why then today don't we experience that holiness that the Jewish people had then? And as we see from time after the destruction of the temple and as time goes on, from the beginning of time, the holiness is weed. Why is it getting less? We should have more of it then. And this comes into the next part of the Torah reading. And the second part of the verse, what does the verse say? That it should be a continuous flame. Rashi explains, what does it mean it could be a continuous flame? That the flame should not need to be ignited constantly, but it should also be able to stand on its own. That the flame should burn on its own. In the Hasidic language, this means self-appreciation, working on your own. You know, there are many times that you can do something, but there's always somebody coaching you. There's always somebody standing there to make sure you get it right. And then all of a sudden, a person says, now you're on your own. Let me see you do it on your own. There are two points in working in our service to God. There are two ways that we can serve God. We can serve God by constantly having a teacher and a mentor guide us, teach us, Hold our hand, so to speak, to do it. Or he says, okay, now I'm not holding your hand anymore. you got to do it on your own. Over here, what Moses was telling the Jewish people, what God was telling Moses, is yes, that Moses is going to shepherd the Jewish people. He's going to teach them. He's going to hold their hand. But there's going to come a certain point that he's not going to hold our hand anymore. There's going to have to be that flame standing on its own. To have that constant flame burning you need to learn how to do it on your own. Meaning, God would rather have leaders than students. God doesn't just want people who are just going to listen to subservient and not think on their own and not be able, capable of teaching it to somebody else. God wants that every single one of us should have the passion on our own. Not that that passion should be constantly, you don't need a fuel injector constantly to be able to give you that fuel, but you should be able to create the passion on your own. You should be self-generated. It should come from yourself. <clears throat> Where the interests are not because you're fed it, it's because you believe it. The interests and the passion that you have in God should be because you're self-motivated to have that passion. That is the best way to be able to accomplish it. How do we do that? How does a person have that? It's sometimes that you need to go away from your home. You need to go away from your teacher to be able to be self-motivated and realize it. As long as you're under the tutelage of a person and they're constantly feeling you and you're under their shadow, you don't recognize the energy that you have in your home. You don't realize to tap into your own energy. Only after a person goes away, he's out of the home. He's not there being covered and being cuddled. Do they realize and appreciate and recognize what they have? Who's the person that recognized this the most? Was Moses. Moses was the one that realized the most that it is only from a distance that he's able to grow and gather and become and attain greater places. If we're going to read the next week's Torah reading, when Moses comes down the mountain, 
on the second, uh, after Yom Kippur, after bringing the second set of tablets. The, Talmud, the Torah tells us that as he came down the mountain, he had these horns of light, an aura of light coming from him, that the Jewish people couldn't look at him. That he had to put on a mask when he spoke to them because they couldn't tolerate the aura that was coming from him. When did he get this aura of light? Not after the first set of tablets that God inscribed, but after the second set of tablets that was humanly inscribed. By the first set of tablets that God inscribed, Moses went up, he came down like a regular person, saw them serving the golden calf, smashed them to the floor, and then he took 40 days of repentance, 40 days of studying, until he was able to rewrite those second set of tablets and bring it back to God to get its authenticity. What was the difference between the first set of tablets to the second set of tablets? The first set of tablets, he was a teacher. The second set of tablets, he was a leader. The first set of tablets, he, I'm sorry, he was a student. The first set of tablets, he was a student. God said, here, come, I'm giving it to you. And because he's giving it to him, did he do anything on his own to achieve it? Nothing. God said, come up the mountain, gave it to him. The second set of tablets. All of a sudden, now God comes to him and says, now you've proven that you're a leader. You put your life for the Jewish people. You are willing to erase yourself from the book. He said, get rid of me. You're going to get rid of them. You now reach the level of self-sufficiency of working on your own. You've now earned something greater and appreciated something that you were lacking. A person can only change when he's a creator, when you're in that creative mode. As long as you're there as a student, where as a student you have to, so to speak, put all your talents to the side and accept what the teacher is saying. But once you have what the teacher said, you then have to take it and move it to the next level and become a creator and teach somebody else. That's why the Rebbe always encouraged us, you know Aleph, teach Aleph. And I guarantee you, I'm sure anything in life that you've experienced, the moment you have to teach it to somebody else, you then have to think of a different way how to process it, to articulate it to somebody else. Because you can understand something one way, and you will never know it as well until you need to teach it to somebody else. Why? Because as a student, we are in this, so to speak, diminished level of self-subservience, not understanding and taking ourselves to the higher level. And therefore, as long as Moshe was the recipient, as great as Moshe was, and as, a, and as all the wonderful blessings he got, he was a recipient of the Torah, but he still didn't have that aura coming from him. The moment he now recognized that he has the opportunity to be a leader and a teacher, or all of a sudden he was able to go to a far greater level. And that's why the first set of laws, tablets, it was only the written law. But in the second set of tablets, it was the written law and the oral law, because Moses was able to attain a greater level at the time. There's an interesting story told about a fellow whose name was Rabbi Newbort. This Rabbi Yeshua Newbort wrote a book, a very famous, probably most common known book on the laws of Shabbos. It was printed in the early 70s, known as Shmira Shabbos Kolchasa, the laws of Shabbos translated in English, translated in many other languages. And it's mainly a book dedicated to the laws of Shabbos that he asked from the great halachic authority of the time, was Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Ayerbach, and he had a very interesting relationship with him. They lived upstairs from each other, 
And in Jerusalem, and he would always go down to him and ask him all the questions on Shabbos. And then he finally made a three-volume set called Shmir Shabbos Kilchasa. And they once asked this Rabbi Newport, what was it in his life that he dedicated his life to making these volumes of laws of Shabbat? And of every end, there's so many laws in the Torah. Um, there's so many laws in the Torah that how was it that he was able, what, out of all things, that he dedicate himself to the study of uh, Shabbos. And he says that when he grew up as a child in Berlin at the end of the 1930s, and as the uh, war started, things were closing in on them, and they were looking to try to escape. And they found one way that they were escaped through Holland, and from there they were hoping to get through Holland and get out of the area from there they came to Amsterdam. And for three years, they were hiding in an attic of a roof. Nobody left. And they were there for a very long time. They would hear all the noises around them, everything that was going on. And they, you know, had to stay there. One Shabbos, I'm sorry, one, yeah, one Shabbos, their father got very sick. The children were all very worried about their father. And one of them escaped from the attic to go get medicine for the father. They had some type of connection with the partisans at the time. And they gave him some type of what they called medicine at the time. But the medicine that they gave him, they didn't have the ability to put in the cherry flavor like they have today and the blueberry and all the bubblegum flavor that you want. So it was very bitter and disgusting. And they brought it to their father that he should take it. The father did not want to take such a bitter medicine on Shabbos. He said, this is going to ruin my Shabbos, and therefore I'll wait until tomorrow to take the medicine. The children were like, you know, astonished. You got to take this. He says, I'm not going to take something so bitter to ruin my Shabbos. A few hours passed, and all of a sudden, people come running into the door to find them. Where are those Jews? Don't touch that medicine. So what happened? They said, by mistake, you came, you needed it and everything else. We sent you the wrong tablets. Those were suicide tablets, not, oh uh, not the tablets of medicine, and we gave you the wrong ones. He says, this fact that my father was so adamant not to ruin his shabbos, that saved his life. Oh and he said, ever since then, I decided to dedicate myself to the study and the teachings of shabbos. It was the depressing moment which brought about within him the concept of being a leader. The most tough times bring out the best times of with each other. Over here, Moshe was being told by God, You will tell the Jewish people, and who are they going to bring the oil to? They're going to bring it to you. Why are they going to bring it to you? Because what's the purpose of the oil? is that every single Jew should be a lecha, should be a mini Moshe. That every single Jew should be able to receive from you. We want every Jew to be a Moshe, to be a leader, because the only way we can ensure Jewish continuity is if we believe that every person is going to teach Judaism, not just the rabbis, not just the scholars, not just the, not just the elitists. Every Jew has the responsibility to be connected to Moshe. And when we connect to Moshe, we can be guaranteed that our flame will never be extinguished. And therefore, as difficult as it is, 
And as challenging as it may be, every single student has to learn to grow and to be able to sprout and become a leader. This is what the Rebbe told us in one of the discourses, in the final discourse that the Rebbe gave, actually. He gave each person, handed it out right before he had his stroke. It was all about the Viata Tetzavah discussing this verse, telling every single one of us that there's emotion in every generation who shepherds the people. But every single one of us has to remember that as long as we are rooted and connected with the Moshe of the generation, recognizing that even after the seventh of Adar, even after the Moshe is no longer physically here, we can connect and he continues to connect. But we also have to remember he's looking for us not to just be a student, but to be a leader as well. According to this, we now understand why is it mentioned in this week's Torah reading? Why doesn't he wait until later to tell them about the mitzvah of the oil? Why doesn't he tell it after it happened with the sin of the golden calf? is because God is explaining to us and teaching us when we are about to experience the seventh of Adar, which is tomorrow, the passing of Moshe. We should understand that the passing of Moshe is not something of the past, but it's something that we constantly enjoy his presence. He didn't pass and say, oh, generations back, they have nothing else to do with us. On the contrary, every single one of those generations is instilling within us the capability that we should be independent characters connected to the past. And with their impetus and their power, we today can make those right decisions and teach the people around us. It takes it even a step further. The choice is very clear. That every single one of us, and if we look at the entire picture and the entire steps of the Jewish people, the first stop was the giving of the Torah. The first stop of the giving of the Torah where God, so to speak, forced us into accepting the Torah. According to one commentary, he put the mountain on top of us and says, either you take it or I drop it on you. But then as the Jewish people went into exile and they went through the time of Mordechai and Esther, they received the Torah again, the Talmud tells us. What does it mean? Because this time they could have converted and Mahaman wouldn't have stopped them. But they were willing to go and self-sacrifice, which is the word kussis, like an olive, in order to get the pure oil. You got to be crushed. You got to go through sometimes some challenging times, and the Jewish people did enough of that. And they went through the challenging time by Mordechai and Esther, and they came out on the top. They were able to see that the Mordechai, who was the Moshe of this generation, brought out the best of the oil of the Jewish people that they should recognize and be cognizant of their soul and their connection that they had with Moshe even after the seventh of Adar. But they still didn't get to the highest level. Once finally the Jewish people continue back into exile, going through all the suffering, the trials and tribulations, and people threw us to the side, shoved us to the side, tried to kill us, despite us, to the, and despite all, we are here today. Not only are we here today in understanding and appreciating godliness, not only are we here today in advancing our Jewish knowledge and in our Jewish teachings, but we stand today as like midgets on giant's shoulders, recognizing that we have everything from the previous generations, though we may be small or midgets, but we're on the giant's shoulders and therefore we have the ability to look back in history and say, we have the opportunity for every Jewish person to reveal the Moses that's in him. We all have a Moses. And what Moses was telling the Jewish people in this week's Torah reading, I'm you command the Jewish people telling you, that there's going to come a time that you're not going to see Moses physically. So what are you going to do? The next two words, you will turn to yourselves. You will realize that within yourself there's a Moses that has to be revealed. 
Within yourself, there's a Moses that has the opportunity to bring oil to light the menorah, all seven candles of the menorah. And when we all ignite that Moses within ourselves, we ignite the menorah around us, we ignite our friends and family, recognizing our Moses, our power that we have, and then ultimately bring about the true menorah, they're seeing Moses in real life, and we will then appreciate with the coming of Moshiach. So that's the, uh, that's the bottom line of it all. That every single one of us has a Moses, and we've got to be able to reveal it. All right. So we'll leave it.